So mindfulness and meditation, what do they have to do with value for money? Let's find out on today's VFM podcast. Hello and welcome to our second VFM podcast. Uh, This episode, as ever, I'm delighted to be joined by a man so obsessed with inertia and auto-enrollment that he thinks there's only one possible answer to the question, would you like another drink? It's Darren, yes please Phil. Thanks Nico, Uh, great (laughs) to be here and to to chat again. And um, I'd first off start by saying there is absolutely nothing with inertia and defaults. And, you know, like you, it's great to be back for our second e- e- episode and to be joined by the Brian Cox of Pensions. You know, we're <laughs> part of the Dream team, aren't we? Um, and I think we had more comments about your piano playing last time than we did about the, you know, the actual topic of the podcast. Um, but hopefully that will change after this one. Oh, fingers crossed. Um, so today we'll be talking to David Butcher about mindfulness, meditation and boardroom effectiveness. Welcome, David. Welcome. Thank you, Darren, Nico. Great to be here. Uh, David has been in pensions for more than 40 years and uh, you're a seasoned board member. Uh, So you've been a member of uh, four DC pensions boards, you are a member, and that's sort of both pre and post the Master Trust authorisation. So you've got the scars of Master Trust authorisation. You are currently a trustee of two Master Trust, David, and a member of an independence governance committee. Um, You've also got a a broad and diverse um, experience in governance, having chaired a charity in the wellbeing space, and a startup yoga and mindfulness platform. Yes, indeed. And hopefully we'll find out a bit bit, bit more about that as the podcast goes on. Yeah, absolutely. So we're both very interested, I think, in working out how that links to value for money uh, in a second. Uh, But first, let's talk about the news. Uh, David, uh, guest's honour, first first deal. What did you bring in for us? Well, a piece struck me the other day in... uh, in the FT was basically uh, reporting on some research sort of in a post-pandemic and cost of living concept, c- context and there were two bits of um, statistics that, that really s- stuck out. The first one was that 98% of UK HR professionals are now feeling burnt out. 98%? 98%. Um, The second number was only 21% of employees describe themselves as being fully engaged at work, Mm. fully involved. The the research then went on to talk about the role of um, tools like meditation and mindfulness for improving uh, that engagement. But what struck me was that we're always talking about these things in terms of the benefit to staff we're never talking about them in the context of how they can add value in the C-suite mm. and in the boardroom. Clearly, that's mm. what we'll come on to later. Yeah, yeah and so, so with that 2% spare capacity that the HR professionals have got, they've got, a, a, you know, they've got to use that time effectively to get those staff engagement stats up, haven't they? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, and if you've got 79% of people in your workforce basically not fully engaged, that, that you know, the marginal gain on that must be massive for the effectiveness yeah. of the business. I think, think of the loss of um, you know the the creativity and the brainstorming benefit. You know, face to face. Yeah, yeah. 
interesting stuff. What have you got for us, Aaron? What have I got for you? Well, um, hot off the press, um, the PLSA um, has launched an updated version of their retirement living standards, which is a, a great initiative um, that sort of frames, um, you know, the amounts that people and couples need to sort of have in retirement. And, you know, it's not really news. I think we all expected that the values of, um, of the living standards would go up given the, the current inflationary environment. Um, but one of the things that I took from that was, you know, the massive increase in discretionary spend. Um, you know, and obviously that in impacts people more who are on lower incomes or have um, smaller assets um, in retirement. Um, you know, how can some people ever afford to retire? Uh -huh. You know, um, if, if we're saying, you know, those are the values that are moderate, adequate and, and comfortable, you know, it's, we've got a long way to go. And obviously I think we'll have something around, um, you know, a, a further debate about adequacy that will come off the back of this. Um, but also it really plays into value for money as well, mm. because it just shows that every pound that people put in, we need to really maximise the value from that for people um, to get them a decent retirement outcome. Yeah, yeah, the adequacy, the adequacy discussion is really important, isn't it? I mean, you know, 8% above an earnings threshold going into your pension uh, as a result of auto enrollment, that can't be enough, can it? It can't be enough. No, no. Um, so, yeah, look, I, I, I feel like I've, I've got a kid in a candy store when it comes to news because um, I, I started a couple of days ago uh, looking at the, uh, there was a professional pensions article on, uh, it, they got the headline, Economic Forecasting, the Law of False Precision, which I wondered if that was what David Vickers of Brunel, who, who gave the, the interview, wanted as a headline. Um, <laughs> but it was his quote, which I wanted to, to kind of bring back to us, which is uh, that economics forecasting gives credibility uh, to uh, uh, astrology. <laughs> Which is J.K. Galbraith. Having um, studied economics at university and econometrics as a as a master's, um, yeah, I, I see that as a slight dig. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even um, less credibility than the actuarial profession, Nico. Yeah, well, oh, good. <laughs> Finally, we found someone lower down that kind of trust spectrum. Um, and uh, then yesterday, I saw in the news that Izio Consulting was going to buy uh, a company I used to work for, so DTRB, mm. Deloitte Total Rewards and Benefits. Yeah. Which is just amazing to me because it, it really shows how far Izio have come. I mean, DTRB is 200. Um, when I left, they were probably 100. It, you know, they're not a, a small force in the industry. Uh, so, yeah, for Izio to kind of make a play and, and win them is, is just amazing. Congratulations to them. Yeah, oh, cool. Um, and then I, uh, my third one is not news. Well, this is kind of privilege. I know. It? Like, I know. Um, it, it was that I was, for my sins, I was reading the recent discussion paper from the FCA uh, on retail disclosure. And I was very much thinking about our conversation last week, Darren. Yeah. And uh, yeah, paragraph 1.3 for the, the geeks among you says, and I will, I will dictate ver verbatim, our 2017 asset management market study found that under 3% of retail investors read regulated pre-contractual fund disclosure requirements. I mean, really? Um, and this indicates, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this indicates that the existing retail investment disclosure framework is not supporting good consumer outcomes. Now, that was the bit that most kind of piqued my interest. Mm. So the FCA, we were talking uh, last week about kind of philosophy and, and, and where you come from. The FCA believes that you have to read uh, pre-contractual fund disclosure documents to get a good consumer outcome. And that goes to the heart of the debate, and um, it, sure does. it really sort of picks up on governance and yeah. stewardship, and mm. um, you know, looking after people and stuff. And I think, you know, it's one of the reasons they're introducing the new consumer duty as well, because mm. they realise that we need a, a massive time shift on this. 
but you know, how do, how far can you go if you believe that the consumer is the person who delivers your good outcome? Yeah, indeed. So, David, welcome. Thank you. Um, look, uh, you know, there's, there's many different topics I'm sure we're going to cover, uh, but let's start with VFM. What, what's your kind of take on VFM? How do you... How do we, we get from there to, to uh, kind of mindfulness and meditation? Well, I think my starting point is that my take is that we, we don't really assess VFM in a way that is relevant and meaningful to our members, to customers. Mm. You know, we do a ton of analysis. We've got tons of data. You know, we've got an, almost an infinite amount of data <laughs> on an individual, but actually we don't relate that to the member's experience and the member's perceptions about, you know, what this pension plan or savings pot is in the first place. Yeah. And, you know, you and I, Darren, were talking the other day about um, the communication side of this, and we were, you know, we were toying with the idea of a sort of an industry collaboration to, you know, go the full distance on plain English, you yeah. know, lots of basic education, lots of plain English, which clearly is something we need to do anyway. But having reflected on that, I don't think that goes the full distance mm, in connecting yeah. with the member experience. Yeah. And to answer the second part of your question, the whole business of you know emotional intelligence and self-awareness and mindfulness has a key part, part to play in how we bridge that gap between the analysis that we do, the data, and the experience of the customer. So, so what needs to happen then to, to get that sort of change in mindset, to, to get schemes, um, um, you know, across the land, mm. you know, focused on um, really assessing that value for money um, in a way that is really um, useful for members and delivers those good outcomes? I, I think we've got to try and build um, a, a new conceptual framework for, for looking at, at VFM. So we, we've still got to do all that analytical work, that, that you know, that logic. You know, we, clearly we still need to um, respond to the regulatory driven request to analyze, you know, returns, you know, net risk adjusted returns, costs and charges, so all aspects of service and so on. That's crucially important. But given that the vast majority of members don't have um, an intellectual framework within their heads to actually understand all that stuff and assess it, assess what it means for them. I think we've somehow got to build this conceptual bridge between the data um, and the member experience. And mm -hmm. I think that's where the the behavioral aspects of mm -hmm. board effectiveness, you know, the, the, the emotions, the, the psychology comes into play. And I think it's in that space where we need to increase our emotional intelligence, our, our ability to empathize. Mm -hmm. Without empathy, how can we understand the member experience? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, mindfulness has a role to play in that space in terms of increasing EQ, emotional intelligence, and self-awareness, um, and, and, and empathy. Yeah. So, so uh, look, let's take us back a little bit yeah because um, I think you've got a you know a fascinating kind of personal history so t tell us what was the role of mindfulness how did you kind of come into discovering meditation and uh, you know the impact it's had on your life well I first got into it when I was at university studying philosophy mm. um, because I oh, I didn't realize you were a philosopher David. yes oh, absolutely yes we go philosopher so, kings it, it, it's exactly so back in in the day, um, the philosophy curriculum was totally Western mm -hmm. philosopher based, right? And I wasn't even aware of Eastern philosophy at that point, but I, I gradually developed um, an awareness with Western philosophy that notwithstanding the massively valuable content in terms of logic and analysis, mm -hmm. 
um, that it was missing out on integrating the behavioral side yeah. of philosophy. Yeah. And that's, of course, uh, I started to discover through, uh, through dabbling with, with Eastern texts. Mm. Um, so th that's where I first developed an awareness of what was then not being referred to as mindfulness, yeah. but a mental process for, um, for, for assessing and analyzing our own thoughts, behaviors, mm. and emotions. So that's where it started. And then about 35 years ago, I did a course on meditation and mindfulness. And so the, you know, it did started to, 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 to develop the techniques. And I suppose it really, um, I, I honed all of that and turned it into a, an, an automatic mental process to help me in my life, but particularly in my role as a trustee, yeah, yeah. through the personal journey that I went mm. on, which involved, you know, a tragedy. Yeah, so t tell us a bit more about that. If you, I mean, if you if you want to, yeah, yeah. I'm more than happy to be yeah. open about that. Um, in in the in the hope that it it adds value to this discussion, but also in the hope that it it, it allows others to perhaps be more open about their sure. circumstances. So I had a, a pretty rough period of, of seven years between 2006 and 2013. Um, it started with my wife's um, cancer diagnosis. Mm. It was initially a, a tumor in the uterus that was fixed with a hysterectomy, given the all clear. Right. A few months later, that turned into breast cancer right. <coughs> um, and a mastectomy and tons of chemo and radio and so on. Mm. Again, the all clear. Uh, and then it metastasized a third time. Um, and it became um, clusters of tumor, multiple tumors, you know, seven, eight, nine tumors around each vertebrae in the oh spine. <coughs> it was so, so appalling that the, the oncologist um, said to me that, you know, she'd never seen anything like, and she yeah. had, she yeah. was, she was tearing up yeah, yeah. <coughs> when she was showing me the, you know, the, 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 the scans. So, you know, that resulted in um, my wife becoming paralyzed from the waist down. There was then a sequence of clinics and right. being in yeah. homes. Yeah being at home 24-7 with, you know, with nurses living in and so on, um, and culminating in um, being, it, being in, a, in, a, in a hospice. Right, yeah, um, yeah. Be, You know, be, and that, that was a period of four years. Right, wow. Um, yeah, so that yeah. really took it out of me. Yeah, of course. <coughs> um, yeah, yeah. There's a kind of a lighter moment in there, but in the, in the context of, you know, discussing death and dying, you know, with my wife, which was that um, <coughs> my wife was a Kiwi, by the way, and, okay. uh, and in the hospice, she met a nurse who was also a Kiwi, yeah. who, 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 who told her that her sister was a, a nurse in a hospice in Auckland in New Zealand. And of course, that generated in my wife the thought, well, actually, perhaps I should be going home to die. Right. Yeah. 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 So there, there was then a conversation about, you know, can you can you get this organized? Can you get me into this hospice? Can you organize the flights and so on? And at that moment, an image from the movie, you know, the movie Butch Cassidy and the mm -hmm. Sundance Kid, an image Great from film. this movie yeah. just suddenly appeared. And you remember when they were being chased across the plains mm. by that, that posse of, you know, relentless sheriffs and so on, and they got themselves cornered. They were on the top of a cliff with hundreds of hundred foot drop down to a river, a raging torrent of a river, you know. And obviously it's in their heads that they've got to jump. And it's at that moment that, um, um, Sundance, played by Robert Redford, yeah. <laughs> tells Paul Newman that he can't swim. <laughs> and Newman's immediate retort, which was brilliant, was that, are you kidding? The fall's going to kill you. <laughs> and that's what came into my head when we were discussing flying my poor wife to New Zealand. 
And when she was saying, you know, organise the flight, and I said, are you kidding? The flight's going to kill you. <laughs> right. Right. And I then thought, oh, my God, I've said the worst possible right. thing yeah, I could say. Yeah, but yeah, in yeah. fact, she was incredibly serene, and she looked at me and smiled and said, well, actually, that would be a really good thing. Uh, yeah, <coughs> yeah, 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 and, yeah. you know, that didn't actually happen. Um, in, in, in fact, the hospice put their foot down and said, no, that's not oh, really yeah, right. Yeah, which yeah. I thought was really good. Um, but then that generated the final... Um, discussion about dying, which was, well, in that case, if you won't take me to New Zealand, will you take me to Zurich for assisted suicide? Right. <coughs> so I then went through that entire process. You know, I paid oh, all the money, yeah. I did all yeah. the tests, the checks with consultants, booked the flights, booked the hotel in Zurich, booked the, the clinic for the, you know, for the lethal inject, all set, all set up. Happily, um, she died right. before we were due wow. to go. But obviously a hell of a journey. Yeah. yeah. And what I didn't yeah. say was at the same time I was, in, in addition to caring for <clears throat> my wife and my, uh, our daughter was only seven at the time of the yeah, diagnosis. Yeah, yeah. My dad also had Parkinson's and he was already on a downward tra trajectory, you know, and he passed away just a few weeks before my wife. Right. Yeah. So, um, so that uh, must have impacted you. Yeah. Hugely. But I, absolutely. But I think if I didn't have, um, the ability to do lots of, you know, meditation and mindfulness. Mm. Um, I think that journey would have been considerably harder. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, you know, that that same theme continued continued in the, in the years following that period because um, I then became ill myself. Yes. I yes. was so utterly depleted from, you know, looking after other people, not taking yeah. care of my own needs, and just relentless, relentlessly pushing myself on. You know. And, but, and do you mean sort of? Obviously, you've got you know you've got a daughter to look after. You've got yeah. your your uh, your wife and your father. But I, you've got a career at the same time, so is that is that going on in the background? As well, well, in 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 actual fact, in <clears throat> fortuitously, I had consciously decided to stop working full time mm. um, before th this whole situation happened with the cancer diagnosis. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> I'd, I'd been running um, a DC business. But I, I'd, I'd left that business and I'd started my, my NED portfolio. I, I, yeah. I had one yeah. NED role at that time. Yeah. And I somehow managed to keep that going during, yeah. during that yeah. period. But yeah. I was unable to, to develop the portfolio. But you, you became desperately ill. I became desperately ill. I, it was one day when I just literally collapsed. And mm. I, I, I was actually in a hospital because my, my daughter wasn't well. And, uh, and I literally just lay down on the floor and went to sleep for four hours yeah. while my daughter was waiting to be, to yeah, be looked yeah, at. Yeah. And that turned out to be um, chronic fatigue syndrome, which yeah. is, is a truly appalling illness, yeah, still yeah, much yeah, misunderstood. Yeah. And I suffered from that for, for three years. So, mm -hmm. and you know, the, being ill, um, but still trying to care for my daughter mm -hmm. was horrendous for her because she was, you know, she was at school, she was being bullied because she was different, right. because she was different because she'd lost her mum. Yeah. So, you know, massive pressures, which just made the illness even tougher to deal with. Yeah. But yeah. mindfulness, out of all of the things that I learned how to do, you know, to fully heal, mindfulness I would probably pick out as the, yeah. as the key to that, that healing journey. Yeah. Well, look, thank you for being so open with us. I mean, I'm sure... Uh, my heart goes out. Yeah, you know what you've yeah. been through. Our, our listeners will be, uh, you know, hopefully very empathetic with what you've been, what you've been disclosing there. That's, that's really kind of you. But so tell us about how. What what what, what does mindfulness mean to you? Yeah. Well, I think you know, 
there's a lot of misconceptions around about mindfulness. Mm. You know, people think, oh goodness, this is some sort of new age Californian trend. Yeah, because it's, it's a word that, you, you know, <coughs> it's kind of on the, the tips of everyone's tongue, right? I like can hashtag mindfulness and there'll yeah. be a whole bunch of yeah, exactly. posts. And yeah, and you say mindfulness and a lot of people just react right, negatively because yeah, they yeah. oh my god what's he on about some you know it's, it's the kind of thing you'd you you'd expect to read in prince harry's book right okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, i'm halfway through my no other yeah, yeah. <laughs> scandalous books by the royals <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> but so let you know let's cut through all of that yeah. um and, and it's it's not a religion by by the way i mean it's got its roots in in, in Buddhist thinking, but, but Buddhism on the philosophical side rather okay. than the religious side. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, what it is, is a way of improving our mental effectiveness. Mm. You, know, you know, we go to the gym for our bodies. Mindfulness is, is effectively going to the gym for our minds. Yeah. So what are we actually doing with mindfulness? We're first of all, seeing what is actually going on in our heads. We all have narratives. We yeah. all have stories going on all the time that we're telling ourselves, you know, how we see ourselves, how we want to be, and so on and so forth. Um, so secondly, it's, it, it's observing in pre precisely and clearly all those individual thoughts and emotions. And the connection between thoughts and emotions is something that I, I managed to get a, a really good grip on, okay. which was very, very important for me because I had yeah. tons of anxiety. Yeah. So you learn how to, uh, to identify the, that with every single thought you have, there tends to be a fear or an anxiety that is attached to it, that yeah. follows it. So it's a, it's a question of figuring out exactly what that anxiety is. Mm -hmm. You know, what is it? Why is, is it driving you? What is it causing you to do? How, how is it causing you to change your way of looking at yourself and the way yeah. your way of looking at your life and how you're operating? So if you can get a handle on all that stuff, what you end up with is much greater clarity about who you are, yeah. what your strengths and weaknesses are, what your behaviors are, what your relationships are, yeah. what is the effect that your actions have on others, on the behavior of others. How does that affect the emotions of others? And I think that's really crucial because if you think about it, most of the time, most people don't remember either what we say or what we actually do. But what they do remember is how what we said or did made them feel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's really interesting, isn't it? Mm. So I think that's the, for me, that's the heart of mindfulness. And I think the, 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 the output, the benefit of mindfulness is that it's going to create more compassion, mm -hmm. more warmth, and more empathy for others. Yeah. And I think that feeds directly into our role as pension trustees right. in yeah. the assessment of value. That's the link for yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah. Mindfulness is just a way of, of increasing our ability to, and our empathy to focus on other people. So, so would you say it, it sort of has really helped to develop your self-awareness? Yeah, um, but also has given you sort of coping strategies for, for dealing with situations. Is that a, is that a summary of, of how mindfulness has helped you, or is it much deeper than that? Uh, it, it's it's definitely that, and I would say that it's uh, over time it's a it, it, it's a, it's a greater ability and a greater incisiveness to to do that analysis yeah. in my head on an ongoing basis in the moment. Yeah. And that's the other feature of mindfulness. You, you, you need to actually find your, your mental space in the moment right now. You, you've got to strip away 
fretting about the past mm -hmm. and strip away fretting about the future. The vast majority of us, most of the time, are spending far too much time worrying about either the past or the future. So this is stripping all that, that away into the present moment in order to create far greater clarity and greater compassion and yeah. empathy. Mm. Yeah, I think I th it, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, I want to come back to the value for money, obviously, come back to the value for money kind of angle. But I just want to tie back to the chronic fatigue. Yes. Side. So, so how does kind of being present, you know, being self-aware kind of link to that kind of physical symptom of fatigue, do you think? Well, first of all, um, th you're quite right that there are physical symptoms of, of chronic fatigue. Um, but at least half of chronic fatigue is in the head. Right. And so the crucial journey that you have to go on is to learn how to um, to manage your head and to manage your anxiety. Mm. And for me, that came to a head during the three-year chronic fatigue period because at one stage, probably about halfway through, I suddenly lost 25 kilos. Wow. Okay. And suddenly was over, like, you know, t a couple of months. Mm. Um, and, you know, I had to... Um, you, the doctors couldn't figure it out. And in the end, the, 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 one of many doctors I saw said, OK, well, look, we have to face the facts here. This could well be cancer. Right. So you're going to have to do all the tests. So I did, you know, the colonoscopy. I did the gastroscopy. I did the video endoscopy. I did every oscopy that's out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, fortunately, I, I got the, the all clear. The oscopy zoo. Yes. yes. But once through that, um, the, the value of the mindfulness was massively yeah. adding massive value because every single minute of every single day, a thought was coming into my head attached to which was a, a ton of stress and anxiety right. yeah. about all manner of things, about sure. my daughter, about my own life, mm -hmm. what was I going to do in the future, uh, how was I going to make enough money to get through this illness and it's so on. too much in your brain. Far too yeah. much. So you've got to figure out a way um, of bringing all that under control yeah. and managing that. Yeah. And it's a massive task because when you get to a certain level of stress, as you do with chronic fatigue, it doesn't matter whether your thought is a tiny insignificant mm -hmm. one or a major one. Yeah. Um, so you, a major one would be obviously worrying about, you know, your, my daughter. Yeah, yeah. You know, and the fact she was being bullied, completely unfairly, of course. Yeah. A, a tiny one might have been, well, you know, sh should I eat a second banana now? The, the point is yeah. that whatever the magnitude of, or, or the severity of the thought, the anxiety still follows, and the anxiety doesn't differentiate be, between the, the, the seriousness of the thought. Yeah. Yeah. It's a ton of ton yeah. of it coming at you irrespective of the thought yeah. so it's being able to deconstruct all of that and as I said earlier that was the key to my my healing yeah. and I should say that um, less than five percent of chronic fatigue sufferers ever fully recover yeah. Yeah. so I'm very lucky that I, that I was in that five percent yeah and we're coming into I mean look you know I don't call what I have my COVID experience long COVID yeah uh, but you and I were talking a few days ago, you know, I, I had it in March last year and it took me a long time to get back to fitness wise where I was before. And then I've had it just before Christmas yeah. and I'm back <laughs> onto the loop of like, if I have too much at lunch, then I'm shattered and I have to have a rest. So I, I think we've got hundreds of thousands, maybe million people in the UK alone who are going to be experiencing some sort of chronic fatigue type type yeah. syndrome. So I think this is really timely for society. It is, and, it, and in fact, the, um, the evidence suggests that there are many similarities between long COVID mm. and chronic fatigue. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very, very close crossover. Yeah. 
So take us back to the value for money, because uh, I guess where we where we kind of cut back there was was thinking about how essentially more empathetic individual board members makes a more empathetic board. But do you think there's is there a group exercise that you can do as a, as a you know at the beginning of the meeting you can sit down and find the moment or to talk to you talk to us about kind of how you think it works as a group yeah i mean that, that that's the sort of observation which tends to get a, a cynical reaction uh-huh, yeah. um uh, yes you can do that you know can you develop a more mindful board yes you can you can go through a series of exercises and we've all yeah <laughs> um you probably need more time and commitment to get yeah. a real value out of that process than probably the vast majority of people who've done that have actually spent on it. So you, you can do that, yes, of course. Um, but I think you have to start you know, bottom up. I think it has to be from an individual level on the one hand. But on the other hand, I think that if we can develop our self-awareness and our empathy in particular, which, are, as you know, are two key elements in emotional intelligence, um, then that's going to equip us better for actually getting together with members and I, yeah. I do think yeah. we've just got to bite the bullet and get together with groups of members I'm not talking about huge meetings mm. I'm talking about sitting down you know maybe with a whiteboard um, in a very relaxed environment um, no suits mm-hmm. and, um, and and just getting some feedback from members it, with, with the objective of trying to find a way of building that sort of conceptual bridge between all the data and the analysis that we as trustees do on the one hand, yeah. and what's actually the members' experience of their experience of value for money. Mm-hmm. And I think that's incredibly important because, you know, if you, um, if, if a member wants to buy a fridge freezer, uh, you know, there's a fairly straightforward relationship between the features of that fridge freezer, yeah. the benefits, yeah. and what they're spending on it. Yeah. You know, they're looking about looking at you know whether it's going to fit into their kitchen you know what the capacity is has it got an ice maker that kind of stuff yeah. um, I was going to say you about com- the ice maker com- yes exactly <laughs> that's your key that's yeah. how you buy fridge freezers so there's a fairly straightforward relationship there between understanding the benefits and the cost yeah but translate that into a pension setting or a savings pot whatever we call it all goes away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's no concept in there in in our members' heads of what value for money could possibly mean applied to some kind of pensions vehicle. Yeah. It's just yeah. that that architecture just isn't there. Yeah. And and the second aspect of that is that the subjective element, which is where empathy comes in, the subjective element of their experience is sometimes a major determinant of how they perceive VFM. Yeah, this, For, is, this is what I was sort of thinking about. I mean, yeah. y- you know, the, the, the sort of happiness index. Absolutely. Approach. I think pensions are too cold, right? So, we'd, you know, people talk about, the, you were talking about the living standards, that's translating a whole bunch of kind of consumptions yeah. into money. Yeah. And then the trustees take the money and go, like, forget about how people feel about those different levels of consumption. Let's just focus on because it's numbers Absolutely. and it's easy to deal with. Absolutely, and you know, in, in, in my in my role as trustee in the last few years, I've, I've done lots of you know listening to calls with members, lots of talking to employers, lots of talking to you know small groups of of, of members, and, and the the theme that comes through, which is really striking, is that well, yeah, you know, we hear what you're saying about you know investment returns, although actually we don't understand what you mean by investment. Yeah. Um, we hear what you're saying about costs and charges and customer service and so on. But the thing is, that's not how we think about it. Mm-hmm. How we think about it is, 
there are various touch points. Of course, they don't use the word touch points. Yeah. There are various touch points um, where we have contact with, you know, with your organization. And the end result of that is that we're either made to feel good and warm and trusting, or we're not. If we do feel good and warm and trusting, then that directly affects our perception of VFM. Yeah. It doesn't matter how much data you give us yeah. in, in your annual report or whatever, we are being driven by our yeah. emotional experience. So I guess my theme is, um, we need to tap into what that emotional experience actually means yeah. in order to be able to relate all of our data to the members' experience. And I think yeah. that's our next big challenge with, with VFM. But, but also, it, it, it shows that VFM, while things like investment returns and costs and charges and stuff is, is an important component of it, yeah. it's not the only component. Absolutely. And the other thing that came out for me with, with all this call listening and talking to members is that there's kind of... We, we know that there's this disconnect that we've been talking about between the analysis, you know, the data that we do, and the member experience. But what, what, what I've realized is that there's a, there's a disconnect um, on three different levels. The first disconnect is that the member, of course, has not made the decision about this. Mm. Yeah. A very, very important vehicle for yeah. them themselves. Yeah. A so disconnect there's a, between the buyer and the beneficiary. Exactly, yeah. so there's that immediate distance and therefore is there any interest or engagement. Um, secondly, there's a disconnect on the two big fundamentals in, in DC land, which is from the member's perspective, first of all, they have no appreciation that the, the risk, all the risk, yeah. is on their shoulders. Yeah. They have no un understanding of risk. Yeah. And secondly, and closely related, of course, is they have no understanding that their money is being invested. Yeah. <laughs> so there's th that's the second disconnect. gambling my money in. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so you got that's the second disconnect. The third one is on actually VFM, right. which, which goes back to the fridge freezer example. Yeah, there's yeah. no way that they can have any concept of VFM mm. in relation to this abstract financial product. Let's face it, the only experience that the vast majority of them have is on the one hand with a bank account and they don't understand how banks charge for and make profit. It's free, David, it's free. It's free. Yeah, 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 That's yeah, the yeah. perception, exactly. Yeah. So they don't understand the, those margin issues. And the second experience, of course, is with the state pension, which they mm. perceive as a fixed amount. Okay, we've got triple lock and mm. so on, but they see it as a, as a fixed, steady, guaranteed yeah. amount. So there's no questions about risk or investment. Yeah. So yeah. somehow we as an industry, I think, have got to deal with those three disconnects yeah. from the member yeah. to the data-driven value assessment. And I think we need to do it this year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well. So uh, if we were to have a, a value for money uh, kind of shelf of artifacts that our guests bring in, Darren, then I think, David, you're proposing uh, essentially that kind of empathetic uh, member experience kind of, I'm, I'm framing it happiness index, but those are yeah. maybe not your words. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's about, you know, people talk about customer experience and all of that, but it's about creating a connection with people, mm. uh, which is in, it's difficult to do at scale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it is especially for sure. Sort of big cost pressures and stuff. But if um, we, you know, using the diversity uh, angle, you know, if we, if we ensure that we we get together with groups of members with sufficient diversity, yeah. all aspects of diversity yeah. within those groups, then we have a reasonable chance of extrapolating from there. And I I, I do re, I do reinforce your point on on empathy. I think as trustees, we've actually got to lead mm. on empathy mm. in order to establish 
um, what those member experiences are. And empathy is tricky. Why? Because boards of trustees, when you look at them, you know, we tend to be of a certain age. Yeah. We tend to be of a certain background and we tend to be of a certain ethnicity. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is the financial angle. You know, I'm not going to say that all of us trustees are, are wealthy or, or even well off, but in general, we tend to be more financially comfortable and at a more comfortable stage of our lives than the vast majority of our members. Yeah. Yeah. So, and the trouble there is that the, all the research shows that as the level of financial comfort rises, the empathy reduces. Mm, yeah. 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 And that must, um, you said that goes fundamentally into, you know, how boards function and decision making yeah. and, and stuff like that. And we, yeah. we, we're coming to the end of the podcast yeah. now. Right? Sure. Yeah. 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 Carry on for, for just, just one other quick thing to add is that on self-awareness and empathy, there is a ton of research um, done by a couple of guys at Harvard. And what it shows is that if you have a team or a board with high self-awareness, yeah. and, and there are measures for this, right, yeah. and, and, and high levels of empathy, there are lots of... Um, there are lots of examples that demonstrate how effectiveness of the effectiveness of the board yep. increases, it doubles at least doubles, yep. Yep. and and it comes down to three that it comes down to, to decision making relevant for our VFM, yep. comes down to um, strategic thinking, yeah, uh, and it comes down to connecting with customers. Yeah. All good points, and I think um, you know my question was going to be, um, you know, what should trustee boards or Boards in general, or you know, schemes between the trustee boards and the exec. What they should, what should they, they be doing to, you know, promote better decision making and more empathetic decision making? Well, of course, you you know, you to answer that question, you've got to you, you've got to look at, um, you know, the culture and style yeah. of the board. That's kind of the, the macro level, isn't it? Yeah. Um, because you know there are decision making processes, and you you know, with a bit more awareness. A little bit of mindfulness thrown in, you could probably improve some of those processes. Yeah, yeah. So I think that would be a good starting point. Um, I, I think you could do some exercises on self-awareness yeah. and, 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 and establish some methods for each individual to to improve levels of yeah. self-awareness yeah. and empathy. Uh, and I, I, th I think generally people would be open to that. Yeah. And, and David, where should people go if they want to find out more about what you've been talking about? Well, apart from asking me, you take take David to the pub for yeah. a while. <laughs> <laughs> That would be the quick and easy way to do it. <laughs> well, you're available. I am. <laughs> Fantastic. No, that's great. So, um, you, I don't know if the, you can hear on the recording, but we're actually in the DG Publishing pod, aren't we? Oh, this we is are. our first one yeah, that we've done actually um, in person. So, um, yeah, thank you very much for DG Publishing for, for hosting us today. A um, couple of events that they've got coming up, which I think we, we mentioned last time, but there's no harm in, in, in mentioning them again. Um, there's the Impact and Responsible Investment Conference. Um, that's the 23rd of March, and I think that's taking place at London Zoo. Yeah, I'm, I'm desperately interested to work out how you hold a pensions conference at a zoo. <laughs> I think maybe it's natural, but well, uh, just there we a, go. Just a different space? kind of zoo to the one we're normally in. We've had the Oscopy Zoo. And there's also the DC Strategic Summit that's coming up on 15th of May. Mm. So they're two good events. And Nico, I think you're speaking at an event, aren't you? I, I'm chairing oh. the Net Zero Investor event on the 31st of January I believe there are some some places still available yep. so I'm signed uh, up are you brilliant yep. yeah I, I'm really impressed in the lineup we've got so I'm, I'm very excited for that and um, yeah I've um, I've got the honor of speaking on at retirement policy issues on at retirement oh, cool. at uh, Hyman's event um, that is coming up on 26th of January Excellent. so it's, it's nice actually to be out and about in the industry again isn't it it's great um, it it's, sure it's, is it's, it's wonderful so 
unfortunately time has got the better of us um, we really hope that um, you enjoyed this episode of VFM um, given Nico's failure to talk about how to subscribe to the podcast and all of that type of stuff last uh, in, in, in our last podcast we've done some work we've, we've managed to distribute it to um, other I didn't platforms. I didn't know what the word platform was no, that's I my know, that was I my know. big failure I'm sorry um, about that so we, 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 we're currently waiting to get authorised on iTunes because I think that takes some time but we're on Amazon Podbean um, I need to get Nico to give me some money so we can go on Spotify and that's what it always like comes that. down to uh, it's always about money um, <laughs> probably get some questions on value for on VFM um, <laughs> but please do follow us and subscribe and um, we're also looking at a website as well aren't we we and, are uh, sort excellent of some of this so yeah. um, take a look out for that uh, tell all of your friends I think that's the for me the most important take home um, if you've enjoyed the podcast uh, we we really really want to kind of start a movement here so uh, please help us to get Brilliant. the listener numbers up and if you have any feedback for us on how it's gone um, then vfmpensions at gmail.com uh, is the place so thank you David for joining us today I think I was Absolutely that fascinating. We could have talked for a lot longer. Than yeah, we? we certainly could. Um, and thank you to all of our listeners uh, for joining us. Um, it is fair to say we've been absolutely overwhelmed by uh, the response to our first podcast yeah. and a little bit of complex suggestions for me to learn on the piano. So we'll give, give me yeah. a year or two. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a year or keep two and coming, we'll come to that. Keep them coming. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, next time uh, we will have David Farrer, uh, who is, of course, uh, the man responsible for putting TCFD into the disclosure regulations for master trusts and uh, DB schemes and uh, all schemes over a period of time. Uh, so we're delighted to, to hear about his thinking on value for money. Yeah, and yeah, uh, I think um, that's about it, isn't it? It is. You know, so, so, so please do like, share, retweet, comment, yeah. um, engage. And um, really looking forward to, to, to doing the next one. But you know, thank you, David. That was absolutely amazing. Thank, thank you. you for inviting me. Great pleasure. Great fun. Thank you. Bye all. Bye for now.